Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This week's episode is a bit of a departure from the norm, but I'm happy to stand behind it nonetheless. When my good friend and past podcast guest, Lewis Cahill, reached out and suggested we sit down together with Andrew Grillos, I knew it was going to be a special conversation. So in this episode of Anchored, the three of us gathered to discuss a topic that's close to our hearts, men's mental health in the world of fly fishing. The conversation is admittedly a bit scattered, but I think that adds to its authenticity. Throughout our discussion, we shared personal stories, insights, and reflections on the unique mental health challenges that men in the fly fishing community often face. From the pressures of maintaining a tough exterior to the stigma surrounding seeking help, we covered a lot of ground. Amidst the conversation, there's a clear message that I hope resonates with anchored listeners. You're not alone. No matter what you're going through, there's always someone out there who's willing to listen and help. Whether it's a friend, a family member, or a professional counselor, reaching out for support is a sign of strength, not weakness. So as you listen to this episode, I encourage you to reflect on your own mental health journey. And if you find yourself struggling, don't hesitate to reach out for help. You deserve to live a happy and fulfilling life, both on and off the water. I want to talk about it from the beginning. So let's let's do this. Oh, yeah, let's sorry. do this. Let's um let's go on the record as of now. And I'm going to lead you both in. We'll hop right into it unless you have any questions before we start. Thanks. So. You're the boss lady. Let's run the show. <laughs> I'm just here to listen. Um, oh, yeah. Lewis. Yes, ma'am. It has been a long time 
since we've seen it. Yeah, too long. It has. It, it's been way too long. It's really good to see your face on the screen. It's good. It's it's a bummer that we can't do it in person like we did last time, but I will take what I can get at this point. <laughs> right and on. today was especially important because there are actually three of us on the call today. So I'm going to do proper introductions and timelines, um, as you would expect. But Lewis Cahill has been a guest on the show before. One of my favorite episodes, by the way. I still fast forward and listen to the monkey story just to laugh out loud and share it with people. <laughs> um, but we also have Andrew Gurlos on today. And Andrew, you and I have just met about five minutes ago. Yeah, like we missed each other at Habit Angler years ago. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so yeah. we've got we've got lots to touch up on as well. Oh, um, yeah. And like I said, we'll do a proper intro. But Lewis, I've got to ask, right. um, what happened to you? I knew that something had happened to your eye. Yeah. I've got then, a new look, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> like, what? Pretty rugged. Like, get, right? Get me up to date. When did we see each other last? When did we do our episode? Oh, I had, wow. didn't have a baby yet. So no, you seen? didn't. So it would, it would have been in the 20 teens. It would have been, I'm guessing, around 2016 or so. Yeah, about that. Oh, wow. Okay, so lots has changed. Yeah. It's been but a minute. I just heard that you had gotten really ill, and I don't know. Um, I, I kind of lost you after that. So what happened? So here's what happened to me. In 2019, um, I went in for cataract surgery. I developed cataracts at a really early age. Um, and other than just spending a lot of time in the sun and, you know, flats fishing and stuff, no idea why that happened. Um, but after consulting a lot of folks and getting a lot of advice on the safety of the surgery, I went in and had cataract surgery and it was botched. And so um, as a result, um, my my retina, my right retina detached and I developed a retina disease called proliferative vitreoretinopathy, which is where the retina builds scar tissue and it continues to tear itself apart and detach um, so over the last four years, I have had 10 surgeries on this eye, um, trying to save it, which, um, you know, it's, it's still in my head, but I, I do wear the patch full time now. And I am pretty much blind in that eye. Any vision I have there is garbage and just makes things worse. And it's, it's painful. So the patch helps with that. But um, each one of those surgeries requiring months face down in bed. So at one point, I spent six months in bed, not even able to roll over, and the better part of two years. So really, um, you know, the eye is somewhat less important than all the other stuff that the treatment has done to me physically. So it's been a long and, um, and difficult recovery. Um, but I think I'm in a pretty good place right now. At least I have told the doctor, if this happens again, we're taking the eye out. We're not chasing this thing anymore. I'm done with it. Um, but I had my last surgery in June, and I have been stable with no medium in my eye since then. Um, the vision will not come back to the eye, but the eye is there. And I have glaucoma as a side effect of the treatment for the PVR. Um, so now we're trying to regulate that and get that under control. And if we can do that, then I should be stable for a while. So two questions then. I mean, I've got lots of questions, but professionally, Ginkin Gasoline and your photography, how are they impacted? <laughs> well, my photography career is pretty much over at this point. <laughs> so my uh, my left eye was damaged as well. And there was, a, there was a good part of time there where they thought I was going to lose both. And I'm super fortunate that that did not happen. I still have sight in my left eye, um, but there are some complications to that as well. Um, so at this point, I'm considering myself retired from photography. Um, 
And where Gink and Gasoline is concerned, I'm still able to shoot the photos I need for that and the videos I need uh, for that. But as far as my being a, uh, a commercial photographer, I've pretty much said goodbye to that. And fly fishing is my 100% focus now. Okay. How are you handling that? I mean, that's almost, you would have had to go through a grieving process, I would imagine, in a number of ways. I went through um, some very dark times. And I don't yeah. Andrew knows he he talked to me yeah, like through I've, a lot of that. I've been dazed from suicide over the last few years and just yep. uh, one foot in front of the other and thinking about what people to live for. Yep. So I don't know if you remember April last time we recorded your podcast. Um, you asked me if there was anything that I did not want to talk about um, on air. And I did tell you at that point um, that there was, and, and you and Andrew know about this, but I don't think a whole lot of people know about it. Kathy and I had um, taken in our godson, who was a troubled kid, sweet kid, great kid, but just had a really rough upbringing and um, had a lot of trouble. He tried to kill himself three times when we got him. Um, and we did manage to get him off all the drugs he was on and in treatment and got a job and in school and doing great. Um, and when he was 26 years old, he took his own life. And that was in 2015. So that was right before you and I had talked. And, you know, although I wasn't directly responsible for that in any way, um, I had taken I had taken him on. I had taken it as my responsibility to keep that from happening. And so I took it as a personal failure and I felt responsible for that in a lot of ways. And in the time that I spent lying face down in that dark room, thinking about what my life was going to be like if I lost both of my eyes. Um, I had time to think about and understand the decision he made in a new way, because there were certainly times that I thought, well, this is it for me. You know, I don't want to live under those conditions, you know, if I lose that other eye. Um, and so there's, you know, there are gifts in everything. And one of the gifts that came from this is it released me from that feeling of responsibility and that feeling of guilt over his loss. Um, and let me put that to bed. Um, as I have okay. said, sorry, with regard to that, I feel like the dumbest thing people say is there's a silver lining. It's like there's a silver lining to having a stroke at age 37 and not having to go back to an engineering job. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, man. You just said something interesting, though, Andrew, um, about silver oh, yeah. lining. You know, you said that it sounded like that was a trigger and, and you don't oh, want yeah, to hear all people right. say it's that. It's a little triggering because I just so many people said like the silver lining is you don't have to go back to a job you didn't like. Yeah, I want to talk about At some the of that. expense of my fucking brain and my body. We're going to talk about some of that later because I do have right. questions for you guys as men. And we are going to dive into, if anyone hasn't figured it out yet, we're going to dive into mental health specifically related mm -hmm. to fly fishing. Um, but I do have questions as, you know, a supportive woman, colleague, wife, mother. I've got questions yeah. about triggers and, and the proper um, like usage of words. So no, no. No such thing. It's fly fishing for the size of the toy train industry. Oh God, yeah. Um, but we'll come back to the silver lining. And I, I'm going to dive right into your timeline here in a minute. But so, Lewis, are, how are you now mentally? You look great. How are you mentally? Well, thank you. That's generous. <laughs> I'm actually in a really good place. And so um, I just got back home from, I think you know, that I spend my month of January in the Bahamas um, teaching my bonefish school, um, which I love. It's just like the greatest thing in my life, right? Um, and the guys who do that school over and over and over again are great friends and the new people are instantly friends. And so I have... Um, 
I had this revelation while I was down there. I have um, I have medication I take for my eye, which leads me to have revelations sometimes. <laughs> revelations. Revel- revelation, revelation was to bring a good friend like me to the Bahamas for a month. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like exactly. I've never bone fished. Maybe I need to go to bonefish school. I think maybe you do. I think so, so I had a revelation the other night about, um, you know, because there, there's been all this thing with the eye. And I just... In the last six months, I started wearing the patch full time because I've, I've worn it for a while, um, you know, for for pain management um, and it makes my vision better. But I was very nervous about wearing it around people because okay. I don't like being perceived or treated as though I'm handicapped. You know, even oh, yeah, I hate that shit so much. I had this revelation that, you know. This guy that I am now, the you know, with the eye patch and the you know one eye and all that, is you know who I was meant to be, right? It's like I I feel like I'm in the place that I'm supposed to be. I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm I'm one of those people that thinks I, I always want to look at the positive. Like you can look at life two ways. You can look at your limitations or you can look at your possibilities. Oh yeah. Right? And I like to look at my possibilities and. You know, this has given me a challenge. I've had to relearn, you know, so many things. I had to learn to tie knots without being able to see. I sat on the couch and tied knots blindfold for, you know, months figuring it out. And I had to learn to see bonefish again um, and and casting. It was because I lost my dominant eye. For a while when I cast, it was like watching someone else cast. I had no idea where it was going. So I had to retrain um, that coordination. So it's given me opportunities to to relearn things better, to think about things differently, um, and to impact people's lives in in other ways. So, you know, I'm mentally, I'm in a really good spot right now. I feel like I'm where I need to be. I feel like I'm making positive changes. Um, I just feel like I've learned my lesson and I I want to be done with this and move on. Excellent. And now you had reached out and and I thought it was a great suggestion for yourself and Andrew to be on the show. How do you know Andrew? And then Andrew, I want to hear point A to point B or point A to point like, Z. Like my relationship with Lewis, is that what you're asking about? Yeah. How did all this come to be? Uh, when I was fishing him on the Connect Talk, I was like, this guy's kind of cool and fun and we better keep in touch. You were Typical, guiding. Like, uh, like, I like this client guy. He's not just like some boring old real estate guy. <laughs> yeah, Lewis told me his chimpanzee story and I was kind of like, oh man, this guy is crazy. I got to keep in touch with him. <laughs> yeah. And, and were you guiding Andrew? Oh yeah, I was. Gotcha. So tell me, but tell me your story then. So you're 40 years old. You started in the fishing industry. Uh, when? I guess like uh, age 20-ish. Okay. And how did that all start? Yeah, somewhere around there. I was like super avid fly fisherman since I was like middle school age and I chose my college based on snowboarding and fly fishing and partying yeah so Western State College in Gunnison Colorado kind of centrally located around really good fishing and really good snowboarding and really good drinking and so I uh I was a regular at this fly shop there and they kind of asked me do you want to start guiding our head guide is kind of getting booted and I kind of stepped into like semi head guideish for this uh to me high mountain drifters what was like this legendary fly shop in the days of like the crappy old boring magazines i recall like this little advertisement in the back like high mountain drifters gunness in colorado it seemed like a big deal and i was guiding for them early 20s and 
stuck with that for, oh, geez, like 13-ish years. And just kind of followed fly fishing around where it would take me, which led to guiding in Argentina and Chile and moving to the Pacific Northwest because my wife went to acupuncture school. Yeah, like Seattle's one of the best acupuncture schools in the country and kind of centrally located to some fun steelhead fishing. Which that's where I discovered my favorite river in the whole world. And I guess my favorite fish to fish for. Yep, sorry guys. Sorry, I don't want to hear about this favorite. Right. You've got you've got my interest, right. Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm assuming it's a steelhead. Say that again. I'm sorry. I'm assuming you're referring to steelhead. Oh yeah. It's like uh I've kind of lost interest in trout fishing since my stroke. Like I don't manage line as well with my left hand, not perfect. And I can still cast a two-hander better than most of the people. And swinging a fly is so much easier. And kind of more exciting than just putting a bobber on it, hammering it, nymphing for trout. And I really enjoy the trout spay thing here in Montana. Like we have kind of big water and not those little tiny Colorado rivers that I grew up fishing. You know, like the Yellowstone and the Madison are great big rivers that have these long drawn out runs that kind of suit themselves to fish in a spay rod. There's so much going on with the left hand, trying to trout fish and mend and all this stuff. It's just way easier for me to get a good cast and get a nice swing. Can, can you share with us the story of the oh, stroke? Yeah, I, I assume everything was going well and oh, yeah. you were fishing, um, guiding. Oh, yeah. yeah, I quit guiding and pursued more stability, like a lot of fly fishing guides careers end. I went for shoot uh, mechanical engineering and got that degree out of the way and ended up in a job that didn't really connect with me. I always said that I would row a boat until my arms fell off. And I was sitting at a computer and my title was cryogenic engineer and nanotechnology it was such a bad fit for me. Like as a like lifetime slacker, <laughs> I guess in kind of academic situations. I had like my two giant engineering monitors and I would angle one so nobody could see what it was going on on that screen and be like uh, old YouTube videos of punk rock shows. And the other monitor was like, work, 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 work. I'm working super hard. I'm not watching the bad religion show. Oh, yeah, I was like, uh, I wasn't that engaged in a job like that. I would spend most of the day watching YouTube and looking out the window. as like somebody that thought they'd be on a river until. I guess for their whole working career and like, I wouldn't have any retirement plan except to guide more. Were you a runner at the time? No running kind of, I discovered running in Seattle. It was a, I think kind of like the lame intro, like people that saw river runs through it and started fly fishing. I read born to run and I was kind of like, this sounds all right. And started running around Seattle and I of looking at the old craftsman houses and the sense of accomplishment that I got. I'd come back home and just think like, oh God, I just ran eight miles. That was kind of an accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, like through my 20s, all I wanted to do was get fucked up and snowboard. And looking back, like looking forward from those days, would like 24-year-old, shoot, 21-year-old Andrew ever imagine running 100 miles? Oh yeah, so it was like a, a big life-changing event was starting to run like anything at belt stepwise. 
like run around the block, run around two blocks, and just little by little. I fell in love with the community around racing. And so uh, it's always kind of fun, like the stupid like St. Patrick's Day and like Thanksgiving turkey trot little 5Ks. Everybody's happy and excited. And that's uh, kind of magnified as the races get bigger and bigger. It's such a big accomplishment for everybody out there running these long distances. It's like such a fun, positive vibe. Like a really this, encouraging, diverse community. This was before. It's like this super inclusive. It's Sorry. like not limited to the wealthy. God, yeah, like some fly fishing stuff is kind of like richy rich person stuff and traveling around the world to go chase these exotic fish. And yeah, like running is fairly accessible. To God, like, like more, uh, more inclusive to all races and sexual orientations. And it's not like hyper masculine bow hunter guy. And it's like my good buddy is like him and his husband can go like run super far and like they're normal, like gay couple and everybody accepts them. Shoot accepts like, oh, these guys are super good runners and really nice. It's a really good community. that's kind of welcoming. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're totally right. I did, I went for a, I do a weekly run down at the park, a communal run, and it is it it's totally inclusive. Oh yeah, everyone's just there to get outside, move, and smile oh, at yeah. each other. Yeah. When people um, ask me about getting into running, and they seem a little self conscious, I kind of always tell them like, "Fuck the people that you might be embarrassed about." Like, uh, yeah, fuck them for judging you when you're out running, and maybe you're going slow and you don't have the look. Like you're not like Uswain Bolt just getting after it. You're like a normal, like chubby white guy running around the block. If somebody wants to laugh and point, fuck them. It's like you're making a step towards a positive outlet. Yep, totally like, agree. So that inclusivity and high fives is kind of a big deal to me. Talk to me about the stroke, Andrew, because that's oh, kind yeah. of the big elephant. I'm in the a room sharer, right so I'll get after it and tell you all the all the craziness. So it was a, a month after I ran my first hundred mile race. It was like the I am tough race in Idaho, like Idaho mountain trail running festival thing. I feel like I am tough. Sounds like a tough mutter kind of corny race. It's like the acronym. And uh, it was like 85 degrees out and super smoky, like big fire season. That's a, uh, there's no way to pin my stroke on anything. But uh, there's a chance that running 100 miles in a hot, smoky day could have contributed. That's an insane burden that I'm going to have to carry for the rest of my life is this unknown event that nearly killed me and ruined my life. Yeah, and uh, I, uh, I'm sorry, I... It was election morning, so I was in my downstairs bathroom, like scrolling on my phone, like looking at the election results. I got unbelievably dizzy and I had the thought like maybe I should lay down on the bath mat right there. And just like stumbled out into the kitchen and as like a punk rock enthusiast, I recall it feeling like I was slam dancing around my kitchen. Yeah, and, uh, and then I stumbled out to our living room. My wife, Autumn, kind of grabbed me and 
pulled me up and yep, sorry, held me up. And oh God, I collapsed in her arms and God, yeah, I collapsed in her arms. Just this one certain spot in our house. Whenever I kind of look at it, it's sort of a little reminder. Like, oh God, that's where I collapsed and hit my head on the stair. And the paramedics showed up and it was just so fucking scary and so, so, so insane. I was thinking like, here I am, like Mr. Ultra Runner guy. And there's paramedics on the radio saying, stroke alert, stroke alert, we got a stroke here. And I'm just like laying on the floor, like, holy fuck, what the, what the shit? How did I just have a stroke? Like, I'm strong as fuck. And there's paramedics telling me that I had a stroke, which only occurs to old people. At that moment, it was like 100 miles an hour and just like sheer terror, like ambulance ride to the airport and flight for life. And I think when I collapsed, I had like the facial droop thing going on, which scared the shit out of my wife. And uh, I came to in a hospital hundreds of miles from home. Like I was flight for life to Salt Lake City and they're the nearest like major brain trauma center. And so I came to with hoses and all that shit in me. Like this front, I guess like the front right corner of my skull was in a freezer for months. Yeah, it's, uh, and I had like a big dent in my head and I had to wear a helmet to get out of bed. Like I could have like hit my head and smashed my brain or something. It was just like so scary. like. What's wrong with my head and why are they making me put a helmet on? How, oh old, God, yeah. was, how uh, old were you, Andrew, when that happened? Sorry, that was 37, like three years ago or so. Yeah, I think that's why I thought like strokes happen to old people, but not a 37-year-old runner. No. Um, what, just so that you have to excuse my ignorance here. It's all right, I'm a... I'm going like 90 miles an hour because I had some caffeine and there you no, go. Kind of excited no. to be here. That's my, uh, my athletic brewing, like non-alcohol, super tasty beer. It's like some coffee style thing. Cheers to you Pretty being good. here. Um, at 37. Um, okay. First of all, the, the indentation in your head, was that from hitting the, you said you hit a stair. Oh yeah. And so you were dealing with trauma, not only of the physical injury in, in hitting the, the stair, but also with stair the internal. Was like a, sorry, that's kind of distracting, but that was like a, like a kind of, like that happened when I collapsed. No big deal. Like I just hit my head on the stair and part of my brain was trying to die. And that was the big problem. What is a, what causes a stroke? Uh, so mine was like an unexplainable massive blood clot that snuck through a super common hole in my heart and went up into my brain and kind of had like a little blockage. Not little, but massive blockage. Is there any preventative yeah, so, therapy? Uh, a for... super common hole, like one in four people has this hole in their heart. It's uh, yeah, like when you're in utero or something, your body is like a left and a right half. It all fuses together and Somehow your heart doesn't fully fuse and there's like a little hole. Yeah, and somehow I farmed a big clot and it just snuck on through and made it up into my brain. Yeah, there we are, collapse on the floor and wake up with my head taken apart. Like all due to a giant blood clot. So how long were you in the hospital for? Oh God, uh, it's like early November to I think mid-December. So what is that, like six weeks or so, something? 
like confined to a hospital bed and unable to swallow or just like speak super shittily. Like when Lewis said in that text, like I spoke like Stephen Hawking, I had no inflection in my voice. Yeah, like I spoke like a robot for months after. I've had to delete videos out of my phone from then. I tried to do a public thank you to my friends, Nick English and Josh Mills, who kind of spearheaded my GoFundMe. I deleted that shit off Instagram because it was so painful to look back at myself talking like a robot. Kind of with the same perspective. This is like my interview spot where you can see all my reels. It's like my little fly tying cave. But you're, you've come so far and, can't, and I cannot believe it's only oh, yeah. three years ago. I, the, we've had some very dear friends who have recently, a couple different people, um, suffer some severe strokes and oh, yeah. not even, I mean, one of them, and I'll just say, you know, Gene Allen, we love Gene Allen over on the Kiss Biox. It, it's a struggle to get a, a word out you're just exceptional i can't believe i'm looking at you after yeah, three yeah. only three years like it's been a really hard road and at first i was just so terrified and i had to learn to walk it's like the left side of my body is affected from the injury and i had no balance and no like like control coordination something yeah so they had me in this like zero gravity harness thing you know, like physical therapist guy at the U of U hospital would like walk me around this little track. And I had to rebuild the connections that kind of control, like moving your legs and standing upright. I would do a lap and then have to sit down and catch my breath, which uh, as like an athlete, that was just so insane. And I was in this like PT room with a bunch of old people with walkers and catheter bags. And I kept asking myself, like, oh, my God, is this my future? I was just, like, adding to the sheer terror that I faced every day for, what, like, six weeks or so. So how did you handle that mentally? I mean, you've mentioned ending your own life a number of times. Oh, yeah, that was the... God, like, I bet within, like, four to six months from getting home from the hospital... I was such a mess and just so scared of what had happened and also medicated poorly. Like the wrong antidepressant turned me into like a roller coaster of insanity, like kind of happy and then just like sobbing uncontrollably followed by the the desire to end it all. I had a, a pattern of standing in my kitchen and sobbing just like a child. And it was like, during one of those episodes, I just decided, like, I can't go on and live like this. And my dad was up visiting from Colorado, and I was like, here, take my guns with you on your way back. I think that was kind of one of the smarter moves. Like, I knew I was that close to self-harm, and I was like, here, dad, take my handgun. I shouldn't have this around. So what was the first I, I I mean, I just, I kind of, I don't know where to go from here because I, yeah. I really want to dive into men's health in general, but I, okay. I still kind of want to just n- know what your first point of, of real accomplishment was again, because I know that oh, you've yeah. actually got quite an incredible story, but before we go into the successes and, and that your 
triumphs. Can we just talk a little bit about the process? How did you even I guess get like circling back to fly fishing because this is a fly fishing podcast and not just Andrew and Lewis and Ape hanging out. Yeah. Like, and don't, I, I mean, the record, first fly the, like months after. The record button's just a byproduct. I, I want to hear it, you know, personally. I want right, to hear yeah. it. So, so talk me through it. So what a was... big milestone was tying my first fly. Oh, really? Okay. Do tell. And my friend Nick English sat next to me to make sure I went through the steps and all that stuff. He was really surprised that I could use the, the old whip finisher tool, which a lot of people struggle with. And it was like muscle memory just burned in. Just finished my mediocre looking steelhead hair wing and a little whip finish deal and collar good. I, my favorite tying for years and years has been steelhead hair wings. I love the challenge of less is more. Making that little neat pinhead on them. Yeah, that fly was uh, super important and just looked like total shit to me. And uh, like I've told people, I think steelhead are idiots and they'll grab something out of curiosity. And I was fishing that fly and it was a little pink and moving. And I think I crossed paths with a dumb one, just grabbed it and ripped me. And it's like, holy shit, my crappy fly just grabbed, got, it got eight. Oh, yeah, I have that fly frame somewhere up here. As you should. Oh, God, yeah. How long did it take for you to start fishing again? Uh, like exactly one year later, my good friends and I did our annual steelhead camp trip. And I realized I could still cast a spay rod well. Like single spay is kind of my like easy mid-ish level line. No shit, mid-ish length. Like I love those dex casts, the fall favorite 55. Just still crushing single spays and snakes on that guy. Like a year after I learned to stand and use my arm. That's like the, the crazy muscle memory that's just burnt into our brains. Like how I could use a whip finisher. No problem at all. And I could still pick up my favorite two-hander and send a single spay out there with an ugly ass fly and hook a fish. And spay casting is so great too, obviously, because you can utilize your whole, your whole body. Oh yeah. Um, okay. And then what about the running side of things? Because I know you had an enormous um, adventure that happened after your stroke. Can you tell us about that? Uh, the stroke was a big adventure. Uh, <laughs> I ran a hundred miles a month before that. Maybe that's the adventure that you're talking about. I thought you ran again after. Didn't you do oh, a yeah, marathon? Sorry after uh i guess like five months after i learned to walk i was back trail running again it's like that focus on priorities my goal was to never lose trail running and hiking and i guess fly tying too i uh set those goals and dedicated myself to them like relentless commitment running again five months later is enormous i'm sorry that's oh, yeah. huge Thank you. And are you still running? Oh, yeah. Um, I have a coach training me to run a 50 miler in June. It's kind of like my first 50 mile that I ever ran. I'm stepping like circling back to my first big distance. I guess that's like shit, probably like seven years ago, eight years ago. So it's kind of nice to come full circle after everything I've been through. Well, and that's my question for you here. My next oh, question yeah. is the full circle comment. 
It sounds like you've come full circle in a very short period of time. Oh yeah. It's a small circle. But it's a full, it's a complete circle nonetheless. How did you in such a short time, I mean, look from the outside looking in, I would think, oh my gosh, this man is meeting all of his goals in such an an enormously, it's just such an impressive short period of time. Oh yeah, thank you. Where did the depression and the thoughts that you had, those dark thoughts enter? Given you were on such a fast- Dwelling on what I've lost and where I've ended up at. Okay. Like I used to be a, not that successful, but a decent engineer and got paid more than I ever did guiding. And uh, my marriage was like as fun and good as it could have been. And we both ran super far through the mountains together. Like we have kind of gone through three tough years thanks to the trauma that we've both gone through. Some of those lows were like, oh, your life has already fallen apart and it's falling apart more. Which uh, going back to the wrong medication thing, that was like that roller coaster that I was on was like some of those low lows. And I made it through them and here I am like fishing the good fight, the men's mental health deal. Let's talk about it. Just like, like, uh, like toxic masculinity. You can't just like man up and tough it out. And sometimes you gotta lean on your friends for, for some help and get it out and kind of like cry on your friend's shoulder and have people that are receptive to the pain you're feeling. Did you feel like the people in your life in the fishing industry specifically expected you to man oh, up? Because uh, no, a lot of people have been pretty understanding and supportive. I feel like the men in the fishing industry, and I actually feel quite confident in saying this as a woman who lives in Canada and in Australia and surrounded by men of all different ages. I mean, my husband's okay. 52. So we hang out with a lot of men in their fifties, even early sixties. I hang out with a lot of younger men as well. I feel like right now at this particular time, especially in our age bracket in the 40s, I feel like there are in the fishing industry quite a few sensitive guys. Like I I don't, don't get me wrong, the toxic masculinity thing, I know, I know it's there. But I feel like that might be generational. Like I yeah. My buddies and I grew up on jackass and like (laughs) our parents or whatever, like a generation or two older grew up on John Wayne and shit. Right. So do you feel like the fly fishing community has that sort of man up mentality? Because right now, just back to remembering that record button's on, there are people listening right now who are struggling. So let's, if you guys don't mind as a group, let's talk a little bit about this. Is that okay, Lewis? I've got, I know you've got insight as well. Because how old are you, Lewis? I can't remember from... I, I'm turning 62 in April. Yeah, right. Old motherfucker. I can't right. wait to come stay in your guest room. <laughs> I want to hear you guys discuss this. I'm going to take a step back and just listen and learn for a few mo- a few minutes here while you guys discuss mental health and support in the fly fishing industry specifically and what your experience has been with such. So I can tell you a couple of stories about that. Um, you know, when I was first recovering and for a long time, because I lost my dominant eye, um, my vision was super sketchy for a long time, really st- still is not as much, but, you know, very disorienting and um, and kind of difficult to get around and being physically weak from all the time in bed. And I will never forget the first time I went out and tried to fish again after that. I went, um, I, I'm sure you remember my buddy, Justin Pickett, works with me on Gink and Gasoline, does the of social course. media. Yes, great excellent guy. And, and And Justin is a great guy. 
for me to hang around because he's a life flight nurse and nothing nothing phases him. He's completely unflappable. So he took me up to a favorite little Berkey stream, you know, that he and I both know and have fished for years. But it's it's a hike in up in the, you know, nowhere. You have to cross another stream to get to it. So we came down and he's, you know, ahead of me because I'm kind of lagging behind. He crosses the stream. And uh, he goes downstream to look at this one little hole he knows. There's usually a nice fish hanging in. Well, I get across the stream, and I didn't see what he'd done. And I thought I saw him head up the trail into the woods. So I was like, and back to our time, I was like, I got to man up. I got to, you know, I was, I've got to prove that I can do this. I got to prove that I can tough through this, right? So I struck up the trail after him. You know, and I'm like, I'll catch him. I'll catch up to him. Not taking two seconds to think, of course, he wouldn't do that. Of course, he wouldn't take off and leave me there. So an hour later, I'm completely lost in a woods that I used to know real well. But in that busy visual environment, I'm I'm completely lost in the woods. I have no, And I started hollering for him. Little do I know, miles down the trail, he's hollering for me. And it took about two hours before we found each other. <laughs> and, and he got me down to the stream, which then the, it's crazy because I still struggle with this trout fishing. The most difficult thing is stepping off the bank into the river because that could be it could be six inches. It could be six feet. I have no clue. Right. So I have to kind of creep down. But I got in there, you know, and within minutes, I'm, you know, I'm catching brook trout and things are happening. And it was awesome. But, you know, it wasn't much of a fishing day for Justin. He definitely nursed me, you know, along the way and and literally carried me out of that place. Because by the end of the day, I was completely spent. Um, you know, it's compassion like that. I'll tell you, if you, if you can, if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you one more story like that. When I... um. When I went back down to the Bahamas, I, I missed I missed my bonefish school one year, which breaks my heart. Um, but I was able to get back down there. Um, you know, every other year we scheduled my surgeries around it. And even when I wasn't really physically up to snuff, I went. And um, the first year I got back, I was a mess. I couldn't see anything. I could barely walk. I got down there and the, the, the uh, managers at, at the lodge arranged a flight out for me. They're like, he's not going to be able to do this. He's going to have to go. And, um, but I stuck it out. I fished every other day, but that first day, I mean, have you ever fished at Bears? No. Have you ever fished at Bears, Bears Lodge in the Bahamas? Okay, so they have a guy there named Ronnie Bain. They have three of the Bain brothers there, Chris, Ronnie, and Loxley, great dudes. And Ronnie is the guy, Ronnie is my kind of guy, right? He's the guy that most of the guys don't want to fish with because he's mean to them, right? Because <laughs> he like barks orders and, you know, he's like a, he's an intense flats guy, which is just because he cares. He wants you to catch fish, you know? And so first day out, I went with Ronnie. We made the hour boat ride down south and he gets out of the boat, you know, beaches the boat, gets out with the other angler, gets them set up on a wave spot. And then he comes back, gets under my arm, carries me across the flat. I can't see where I'm putting my feet. I can't see the flat, let alone the fish. And he tell he tells me, he says, I don't care. You can see, you can point that rod and cast. We're going to catch fish. And in five minutes, he had me hooked up to a bonefish that I could never see. And this is like, this is my most passionate thing in life is, you know, not just bone fishing, but teaching people and helping people, you know, accomplish that. And I honestly didn't think that I, I thought it was never going to happen again. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to do it again. And that man gave me a gift that will never, ever disappear. You know, the only 
my wife is the only other person through this whole thing that showed me the kind of compassion he did that day, you know, from the guy that nobody wants to fish with because he's too mean. Right. And that's the kind of that's the kind of stepping up for people that changes lives and makes a difference. Yeah, you know, that's actually kind of really shows good who your friends are. Yeah, like who's going to be there for you and hear you out or let you lean on them if you need a hand. Do you feel like the fishing mm-hmm. community has been pretty supportive? There are some wonderful organizations. How have you found, I know you had mentioned one earlier. Who was it that you had mentioned in that text message chain we were in that you wanted to talk about? I'm sorry, are you asking me or Andrew? <laughs> Both of you guys. Yeah, um, yeah, when I was thinking about this, one thing that I wanted to add. Yeah. And so like uh, fly fishing is kind of a recreational fun focused thing, which my good friend Ken pointed out to me. He was a regular customer at Avid Angler. Then maybe you've guided him, April. I think he's he's a huge steelhead nut. And he's like, I was talking to him after the stroke, like full on Stephen Hawking voice days for me. And Ken said, like, uh, I'm not surprised that fly fishing came together and raised so much money for your bills. And that's kind of a fun focused thing with a, a lot of people that are here. Or because they're uh, the right match. Oh, shit. I just lost my train of thought there. Well, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people in the fly fishing community and in the industry who love you. And that's why so oh, many yeah, thanks. stepped forward. Because for, for a guy who described himself early earlier as a lifelong slacker, that could not be further yeah, well, description I would give you of Andrew Grillos. I don't know right. anyone who expects more of themselves than Andrew. And right. that's right. why you're really people like that's, that's why there were fly shop customers from Avid Angle that are just coming out of the woodwork to help me out. And people appreciated that I was myself and like genuinely take an interest in what they had to talk about yep. and be respectful. I think people said like Andrew was respectful and really helpful. And that goes so far. Yep. Do and you I think, think you were probably thinking of fishing the good fight, which is an organization. Oh, yeah. Colorado um, oh, yeah. that focuses on men's health and they run retreats. Um, really, really great organization. Andrew's been to their retreats. I have not, um, but they really seem to be very focused and doing great work. And, and oh, yeah, they're, uh, I think firsthand Jennings kind of has come to appreciate men's mental health care. The guy behind the whole deal. Mm-hmm. I think he was a step away from a like an NFL football career or something. Like an injury led him to losing some kind of a deal or something and like full-on crazy depression like couldn't get off the couch kind of thing set in and he he got pulled out of that by god knows what and found fly fishing later and kind of realized that that could be a vehicle to help man out he's got kind of like that sensitive thoughtful side that a lot of us uh like more normal healthy guys have instead of like toxic masculinity tough up man out man it up boy some shit like that. Can, can we just touch on, I know there are people listening right now who are rolling their eyes thinking woke, woke, woke. Oh, yeah. Toxic masculinity. I don't, I don't know what the definition is for you. For me, it's open the door for me. Please open the door for me. I'm not, I'm not that girl. I want, I would like yeah. people to open the door for me, but um, in fact, that's why I love Montana. I love the gentleman in Montana. Oh, yeah. like, but for me, it's the whole like, like man up pussy. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, having rolling your eyes at any sort of sensitive sensitivity oh, yeah, or sure. any, yeah, like, uh, any sign of quote unquote weakness. You oh know? yeah. That's, I kind of got a really cool thing to share about that. And so like, 
I spent hours crying at my fly tying vice here and I was unable to crush my signature patterns and just like shittily tying them and like lots of crying, staring at my vice and empty hook. When I told that to Rooster, he said he got kind of teary at his vice tying that night. Like Rooster is like Mr. Big Personality, hilarious guy. And just getting him to say like he kind of cried at his vice when I shared that with him kind of showed that he's like a real guy with real like real emotions and not just larger than life rooster like he's got little girls so i'm sure he's kind of got a sensitive side oh he's a big softy huge um can we i've got a question for you do you think that there's this unwritten or invisible line um where people tend to i'm going to use the word sympathize even though it's probably the wrong word and in editing i'll be kicking myself that i didn't come up with a better word but it's all good Maybe even people being able to relate more to mental health um, deterioration due to physical injuries than, say, someone who suffers from anxiety. For example, you know, Lewis, that guide in the Bahamas who was kind to you, he could physically see that you uh, were going through a hard time, whereas he might not be able to see somebody who's suffering from anxiety or depression or whatever it may be. Do you feel as though there may be difficulty or, or some sort of, you know, even prejudice based on whether it's a physical injury or whether it's a mental issue that can't be seen? I think there is. I think that line's a little blurry, you know, because I've had people, I've had people treat me yeah. incredibly. Yeah, maybe a little blurry for you, Lewis. Sorry. <laughs> <Is> that- <laughs> You're one of my good friends, so I can just throw shit like that at you. <laughs> he just threw a pun on you big time. He said it might be a little yeah. blurry for you. You're right. Like, I, so oh, sorry, I had a guy at, at the Moe's, you know, the Moe's, bur- no, it wasn't Moe's either. I'm sorry, it was Willie's, the burrito place. We, I don't, you don't, they don't have in Australia or Canada, but I was at the Willie's burrito place. I had a guy throw my order in the trash and refuse to serve me because I couldn't read the menu. Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I said too. That's what I said on the Yelp review. <laughs> yeah, but, like, yeah, there's, there's I, no fucking with you because you're not a small, wimpy guy. Like you could have just pulled that burrito out of the trash and made him eat it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not quite the man I used to be. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there is that line. I think that if you've got, and it's interesting how it works because, you know, I, I mean, sure, you know this about me too. I'm also deaf as opposed. I've got a 50% yeah, yeah. hearing loss. And, you know, that hard were, yeah, right, exactly. All that rock and roll is what it was. Oh, but yeah. if you I love um, that. Your old <laughs> punk rock photos or new wave, whatever you were. Andrew and I are both old punk rockers. Oh, yeah. But for if sure. you were missing an arm or if you were missing a leg or something, you know, then that's different. But when you have some, you know, if you have hearing loss or vision loss or something like that, um, people are super impatient about it. You know, they're like, why don't you get hearing aids, you know, or or whatever yeah. it is, right? And that is one thing that the patch did change. When I started wearing the patch, um, I was, people are kinder about it. People see that. It's also a visual cue that, hey, you know, if I, people get really mad because I bump into them and stuff, you know, and this way, at least it's a cue. They go, oh, he can't, he can't see over there. I've also been told I look like a contract killer in it. And I think that probably helps. Oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think you look really that. cool. But I do, I do know quite a few men in my personal circle who are struggling emotionally, whether it's by going through a divorce or going through a, a change in, you know, change of tides in their life or career, uh, financial burden. It's 
it's very heavy. And I don't want to compare like a, somebody who's just like you one know, of just the many having... counselors that I've seen over the last three years said it's like I had a midlife crisis set in. Yeah, not so, set in, but like it, I'm no longer an engineer. And oh god, well, I have no idea where I was going with that. But I'm just not going through a, that shit like a 20 year old girlfriend. No, but a, a, a full change. So can we talk about oh, that? Yeah. Can, would you guys mind contributing oh, yeah. and and specifically Please. thinking about men who are listening right now, young? I mean, all ages. Well, I'll tell you um, something that is interesting. It is a, it's a really difficult time to be a man. It's a particularly difficult time to be a white man in we were our culture. Just talking about this at home the other day. Just having yeah, this conversation. It's just like free reign to shit on white men for anything. Oh, yeah. and, I mean, people who, you know, have been good people their whole life, who've never been sexist or racist or, you know, whatever it is, there's just this this cast on them. And I think, you know, men feel more alienated now than they ever have in history. And I think there are probably some people who think, well, good, they deserve it. But the thing about it is people are people, people are individuals, you know, and lot, plenty of people are assholes. Well, yeah, of, like in my know. guiding career, I'm sure you can relate April. Like I would always tell people like 60% of the people I guide are just kind of like, man, like they're nice enough and not that interesting or like we're gonna be besties. And I think like, Oh God, I'm totally wrong. So there's like a portion that I could forget about and another small portion that I could be close friends with. And there's some other portion of total dickheads. I think it's like real life, like half the people you meet are okay. And there's some total dickheads in there and some that you could actually be friends with. But they're not all like yeah, that. There are there yeah. are definitely, there's a percentage of yeah, those. that's like the exception. But but yeah. Lewis, just going back to being a man at this time. Yes. Um. I think you've really hit a point there. And mm -hmm. and and I just I wanted to feel free. I mean, this is you're in a safe space right now. Everyone oh, yeah. pretty No, I have no I have no problem talking about it because I, I feel it too. You know, everybody does. And, and men are just under a whole lot of pressure right now um to kind of prove themselves with everything they say. And you can't, you know, it's hard to like one thing that really, I'm sorry, I'm stammering over this, but one thing that really gets me is this, this idea of mansplaining, right? So I'm in a position where I'm in the business of teaching people. I'm in the business of offering information, both online and one-on-one. -on -one. And now if I'm trying to explain something to a woman, I have a loaded, you know, it's a loaded situation where I come in right from the start because I'm a man, I'm not supposed to explain anything, you know, and it. It is challenging. And men, I think particularly younger men, just feel under a lot of pressure with that, you know. And so it, that's hard enough. And then the other thing that I think is key to this is that when you have a problem like Andrew or I have, there's a phenomenal amount of pressure to put a happy face on it for people. Yeah. People want to hear that's that. one of the toughest things for me is people telling me they just want me to be happy. Like yeah. as I'm uh, dealing with depression and kind of these sad reminders day in and day out. Right. So as if you so didn't hard have enough of a job. We just want you to be happy. Yeah. And as if you didn't have enough of a job relearning to do everything in your life, now you have to make it look easy so that other oh, people yeah. feel bad about it. Right. And that that makes it that makes it really challenging. And it's, you know, this idea when you go back to talking about toxic masculinity, 
I don't know that it's fair to call it masculinity, but there is definitely this toxic idea that, you know, you're not allowed to have a negative experience without it being complaining. It's hard for people. It's hard for people to look at someone who's been through something really traumatic, especially something like you've been through or something like I've been through where it could very easily happen to them at any minute. Right. And I know that's a terrifying thing. And I think that's a lot of, that's a lot of why they want to hear that everything's going to be okay. I think you a know? tough reminder is that it shows people like their uh, like mortality or something or not mortality, but yeah, their vulnerability. Yeah, their vulnerability. Like this and, could have happened to anybody. And the better message I think is that yes, you're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable oh, yeah. too, and I can still beat this. I can still get through this. I can still have quality of my life even though something terrible has happened. Yeah, that's uh, but I am, but I'm still vulnerable in the process and that's okay. Oh yeah. And I'm okay with sharing my vulnerabilities that I cried a lot and like went out to my shed and just threw stuff around and screamed. It was like, I was just a mess from what I had been through. So how do we then support that? I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was reading, it's okay not to be okay. I always get the title messed up. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Regardless, one of the things that really resonated with me is just through a grief, through a grieving period. Oh, yeah. People do try to find words to make you feel better, like silver lining, as you mentioned when we first started. Um, What is, you know, know, in the book, she goes on to say that it can just make you, it can be infuriating to have somebody constantly be saying, you know, um, it'll be okay. I was reading it after I'd lost my, my, Colby, which was a yeah, was for that, me uh, a life-changing that point. Kind of cost me a couple friends. Right. So what do you and I was like at one of my lowest lows and so, but what so is what what said, are uh, some sorry Andrew, I'm just gonna keep I just want to finish my my thought my thought here is um what when it comes to triggers and things like hey there's a silver lining um, oh, yeah. Are you okay? You can get another puppy, you can get another job, you can get another husband, you can get another wife, you can yeah. whatever it may be. What should we be sensitive to as far as the people asking the questions to try to make you both feel better or anybody in our life in our life feel better? What well, are some I think triggers for you guys? First of all, to be there, you know. Yeah, a lot of people go to I'm what sorry, mean, go ahead. Uh, what do you mean? Like be, I told you, Lewis, there, on, after my stroke and with your eye thing. Like, if you want to just call me and cry into the phone or scream into the phone, I'm here for you. But but what is what is be there? Um, you okay. know, and I'm asking, and I really need to preface this, actually, because the more I'm speaking to you both, the more things are really firing in my head. Uh, I've got yeah, a like very I good guy. I alone a lot of times. And but I, so I just want to finish. I just, I'm, personally, I've got a really good male and female friend, both who don't know each other, both who are standing on the edge of the world right now and they are at the stage that you had spoke about earlier where they're ready to end it all when you say be there what do you mean do you mean get in an airplane and fly there do you mean check in every day what do you mean kind of try to check on them and have the emotional intelligence to to read it and be like oh they're having a tough time and what do they need like, I didn't need somebody to tell me this bullshit after school special. Like, if you hurt yourself, think of all the people you'll hurt. Like, as I was in so much mental pain and anguish, I called her out and said, you're just going through the motions and that's bullshit. 
which I think kind of cost me a friendship. Mm-hmm. Like I had other friends that would listen to me and uh, just hear my nonsense as I was like, oh my God, it's so fucked up. I'm so sad. I lost this and that. And I used to be this amazing fly tire and I don't tie perfect anymore. Like my whole life fell apart and I just needed somebody to let me vent and kind of be there to listen. And I think that's the key. I think that there's nothing you can tell somebody about their situation. When you have a traumatic event, you spend 24-7 rolling over in your head. What's going on? What could change? How did it happen? How do I get out of this mess? You're you're in that constantly. Um, There's nothing anybody can tell you about it. The, the thing to do is to be there to listen, to hear what's going on with that yeah. other person, to let them be themselves and to not. So you get two common responses. There are two common responses you get in a situation like that. One is people just disappear. I had friends that yeah. you know I didn't hear from for years who just, you know, then when you see them or something they're like, well, I knew you were going through a bad time. I didn't want to bother you. And what it really yeah. is is. They didn't want to bother themselves with it. They couldn't deal with it. And so, you know, they just avoided you. And then the other response you get real commonly is people who call you up and they ask you how you are. And, you know, you try to give them an answer. You say, well, it's been a little challenging. It's whatever. And they keep trying to put that positive spin on it. Yeah, like people can't handle when you say I'm terrible. Keep listening. Keep talking. What What do yeah. you do when you're the per? Uh, so my my female friend, I try to put the positive spin and listen. And I will say the listening. We've been friends for decades, and so the listening I have learned over the last twenty years is is the go. So that's where I've landed with her. But with this male friend, every time we speak over the last year, it is the same recounting what got him in the situation in the first place. We're constantly reliving and never coming out of the hole. And it is if it is officially now, it has worn me down to the point where I now am avoiding phone calls and now I'm feeling like a shitty person. Help. What do I do? Well, let me share, let me share something with you about that. So I we, we just lost my mom in November. Um she I'm was 94. Sorry. She had she had dementia. Thank you. I would not have wished another day on her like she was living. Um, but she had narcissistic dementia. So she was very difficult for everyone around her. They threatened to throw her out of the hospital. At one point, she was such a handful. Um, and I told one of the people who was complaining about it that, you know, if she's making you miserable, the misery that you're feeling is one tiny fraction of the misery that she's feeling. That's you're why making me jealous, like. Lewis. So if you, oh, I know this is, this oh, is anyone not uh, watching on YouTube cannot see that you just have had the most beautiful cat crawl up and perch on your shoulders <laughs> and you're making me jealous too. And I'm just going to say for the record, it's one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Thank you. I want to get him screenshot a it. <laughs> okay. There I want to get him a parrot costume for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> But um, anyway, so if if you keep going back into that hole with your friend, it's probably because he's in that hole. He's still living in that hole. And I, I hate to say it, but he's the only one that can get him out. You know, you, you can't do that. So what do you do when the calls are just, and I'm talking hours and and yeah. hours of, of digging in the same hole. I, I start to wonder if he's losing it. And, you know, so, and I totally admit, I get to the point where I look at my own life and it's like, I cannot be in this hole with you. I've got to get on with my own day. Um, no, it's, it's what really I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to be supportive. And I and I, I end up, as you said, feeling guilty at my own reaction and my own impatience. And mm-hmm. 
And it just makes me feel like a real awful person. It's not a good feeling. And so you, you end up distancing yourself because you don't like the way you feel and how you, you know, mm-hmm. handle the, the situation emotionally. I can tell you some of the things that that people did for me that made a difference when I Please. was in the darkest place and when I was, you know, in bed or not, be, or just getting out of bed. Um, you know, I had a friend who who came to see me from California. He was flying somewhere on the East Coast, um, but he did, elected to fly into Atlanta and run a car and drive so that he could come by, you know, and see me. And I was just getting up on my feet at that point. I had to walk with a cane and stuff and took me out to eat, got me out of the house, you know. I had friends that when I was in that phase were like, hey, can I come? Because I couldn't drive for a long time. Can I come pick you up and take you to lunch? You know, one on one is really big. Yeah. Like I had I tend to isolate thing. myself. And like often right. my wife pushed me, like, why don't you reach out to people and hang out and just don't tie flies and isolate? And like being around people kind of helps if you're having a shitty time. And it's impossible to reach out to people when you're in that space. It's, you know, because you feel like you're doing exactly what you described with your friend, like you're just dragging them down. You know, there's so much pressure to not be able to talk to somebody unless you have something positive to say, you know. And like I had a friend who came over because I couldn't drive my car. The battery died. And I had a friend who came over and put a battery in my car, didn't even come into the house, didn't talk to me, but would call my wife and check on her and ask what could they do for her that meant a world to me and it's as stupid and old-fashioned as it sounds people who sent food just yes i'm doing something right i'm a food sender okay good (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah a spoonful of comfort do you know about spoonful of comfort no it's my favorite thing it's an online service where you can order soup and cookies and stuff and have it sent to people it's 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 wonderful it's amazing people did that for us and now we do it for people all the time and uh, had another um, friend who just would go to the grocery store and just leave bags of groceries on our door, you know, and text and say, because a lot of this happened during the pandemic. So we were locked down and, you know, it was weird. Weirdly enough, I have this guilt surrounding the pandemic because people always talk about how terrible it was and all this stuff. The pandemic was the best thing that ever happened to me because Kathy's work, they started working remote. So before the pandemic, it was me face down in bed and she would leave a Yeti mug with water and a sandwich cut into 12 bite-sized pieces on the night table. And that was my day, you know, because I I had to reach over and do that. And then went from, you know, that lying there thinking about being blind and, you know, (laughs) checking out to having my wife around to talk to and to, you know, that it made a huge difference, made a huge difference. And Andrew, you were going to say, so being in person helps. Yeah, like having like face-to-face, one-on-one contact with friends. It's like a texting is super impersonal and a phone call is kind of this distant thing. How do guys, how do guys do this? Um, because at the end of the day, even though I've got lots of guy friends, I'm still not a man. Um how does it go down? When I go down, when I go out with my girlfriends or even I meet an, another woman, it's a very organic sort of rabbit trail that we go down before we know we're sharing each other's lives. With men, how does that happen? How does the softness happen where you can talk about how you feel? Depends on the guy. Other, like other friends that are also kind of emotionally intelligent men. Emotionally like, oh, intelligent. Andrew's having a oh, hard time. A how can I empathize and accept that he's having a tough time? And not just tell him to, I wish you were happy. 
It's really true. And you know, that that um, idea of emotional intelligence oh, yeah. is an important thing. And, and I think, honestly, that a lot of men who are not able to do that, who are not able to talk about their feelings, not able to share in other people's feelings, not able to empathize, um, you know, that the, it's easy for people to think, oh, well, they're a bad person, you know, that they don't they don't care or they're not sensitive or they're not emotionally intelligent. And usually it's because of some trauma they've experienced. It's because of the way they've been treated and the way they've been raised that they don't feel safe doing that. You know, so it's not really, I think, as often a shortcoming on our, their part as it is um, just, an you know, something that's as difficult for them as it is for you. You know, and and it is challenging. But like Andrew says, there there are people you click with, people that you have that bond with, people who have empathy yeah. and who understand your situation. Um, and then things do happen organically. But it's tough because a lot of men just have that beaten out of them at an early age. So what about organizations that do focus on this in fishing? I know Project Healing Waters does some great work, but and you'd mentioned the organization in Colorado. Oh, is yeah. there something that you are that either of you are working with, Louis? Have you thought about doing a, a men's retreat in the Bahamas? I just think you'd be such a great ringleader for that. You know, that's a great idea. No, I hadn't. And and the thing is, there is a vacuum there. I mean, we've talked several times about fishing a good fight, but they're the only people I know doing that. And you know, um, Healing Waters Warriors on Quiet Waters. Um, you know, they do good work, but it's all it's all very veteran focused. You know, yeah. which is great because we have a lot of veterans. Um, who were in need. Um, but it also kind of creates that sort of class system where, you know, if you're not a veteran, then you're not worthy of help, you know. So um, there's there's not a lot that I know. And and something that was, even if it's not fly fishing, because I know that that's challenging for some people, but in something that was outdoor related that gets people to find their place in the natural world, because that in itself is incredibly healing. You know, just being, filling your place in the natural world is an incredibly healing thing. So I'd be all about doing a retreat in the Bahamas. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, I think you should spearhead that. What about <laughs> you, Andrew? What, what, Where are you at right now with work and uh, involvement? I'm sorry, with work, is that what you just asked? Well, with, with work and your involvement just oh, in, God, in fishing. Yeah. I know that you're working at the store, um, but oh, yeah. are, are you going to come back in the fishing industry, do you think? I think I'm a lifer. I think I'll be around. And how is your recovery? Uh, what percent do sorry. you think your recovery right now? What's the status update? Sorry. I'm uh, like I'm gonna have like little quirks for the rest of my life. Like just like I might tend to interrupt you or stuff like that, and have kind of a shitty memory. I've come so far physically. That I'll still be able to run ultra marathons and tie flies and cast a two-hander well. That's all kind of stuff that's pretty unaffected at this point. I'll tell you one thing that was really clear, even in those early conversations I had with Andrew when he, like he said, he talked like a robot and had oh, no God, yeah. that I could tell, even in those conversations, that the man I knew was in there and he was fighting to get out. Oh, and yeah. You can't believe the difference between him, them, and then and now. You just can't believe it. It's quite it's quite incredible. I cannot believe it's only been a hand, handful of years. It is inspiring, completely inspiring. Oh, and thanks. I he guess is one of the, that. I think I've 
it's been kind of tough at this point, sort of hard on my wife and I, after everybody telling me what a hero and what an inspiration I am, has kind of built a bit of an ego. Like, I'm a badass motherfucker, and look at what I've come back from. I learned to walk, and I'm running ultra marathons, and I'm so inspirational, and it's kind of been a little hard to handle. I've always kind of been quieter, like, I'm just Andrew, and like it or not, I know I'm like Mr. Inspiration. It's kind well, of been a tough, uh, tough adjustment to getting that kind of feedback on who I am. I don't know about being Mr. Inspiration, but yeah, I will right. tell you this um, time and time again, when I was in dark places, I would think about you and a couple of other friends and think, you know what, my life could sure be a lot worse. Oh, yeah. Because that is a lot of pressure. I hadn't thought of that. You know, when you do have those accomplishments, then all of a sudden there is that pressure of maintaining it and staying strong. And also, I don't know about you guys, but the darkest time in my life, um, I went through a major or breakdown, to be honest, landed me in the hospital where I just needed to live every single day as if it was my last. Because I had vowed that if I would survive what I did at the time it was my car accident, if I could survive the accident, that I was going to live every single day and not take one moment for granted. And eventually that pressure, it really tore me down. It, it wore me out. Because then you're tired one day and you know you sit on the couch and you eat nachos and you waste the day watching Netflix. Say, but this is we didn't have Netflix back then. But you know what yeah, I mean. You're Canadian, waste the so day. Poutine. Oh, right now, I was, yeah. and this is like twenty years ago. Yeah, right. twenty years ago. But you know, it you and I know for me, I'd be like, I wasted a day. I should have been out there. I should have been doing this. I should have been helping people. I should have been building my career. I should have been fishing. I should have been making the most of my day. And you really, when you realize how short life is and how valuable it is there is this insane pressure to live every day as though it's your last. And it's not sustainable yeah. for a lot of us. It's not sustainable for anybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, um, first of all, two questions. Is, is there something, again, specific to men's health and fly fishing that I just don't know to ask that I should be asking? I don't want to have this opportunity and miss it. That's a tough question. Um, I kind of feel like a, an opportunity for introspection and whatever self-reflection is pretty important. Just kind of being able to think like, what's making me happy? And I'm enjoying this moment on the river swinging the fly. I think being kind of present in some positive situation. Just uh, being present and enjoying where you are. I think that's why the outdoors and fly fishing is kind of therapeutic. Is it generational, Lewis? I'm sorry. I mean, you got 20 years on, over 20 years on, Andrew. Is it generational? Do you feel as though there's this pressure on older men specifically or younger men to be one way or the other? I think um, older men were raised differently, you know, and I have always been kind of an oddball. I've always been unusual and you know not surprising yeah right, right exactly not surprising um but i think that um men of my generation and men of previous generations um were raised to cover their feelings they were raised to not show um or not even consider what their problems are that their problems are you know not problems or not worth considering and a lot of guys even younger guys i know still still function that way and i think it's important um when you're dealing with people to realize that you know 
everybody has their struggle, right? Everybody oh, yeah. has something to want. You know, um, when I'm on these trips and I hear guys talking, about, you know, they make a joke and they talk about, or they talk about, you know, somebody who's gay, for example, in a derogatory way. Well, you may not be sitting with one of those guys who's gay, but they may have a child who is or a loved one who is, um, you know, or, you know, any kind of situation like that. There are things going on with people. So you have to be, I think, sensitive to that. When it, it really just comes down to, for me, the only thing that makes you a better person is empathy. You know, your education doesn't make you a better person. Your bank account doesn't make you a better person. Your occupation doesn't make you a better person. Empathy, understanding and caring about others and participating in their journey is what makes you a better person. And whether it's men's health or just mental health in, in general, I think for me, that's the key. Have you read How to Be Compassionate by the Dalai Lama? No, I have not. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's so good. I used to take people's anger towards me or life so personally. And now it's just, I feel for them. Empathy. You're right. That's a great point. And you have, you have been through that. I mean, I would just acknowledge that, that, you know, you've been through the ringer with people's public opinion and irritation with you. And I don't get it, frankly, but um, I have always thought you handled that with grace. And thank you. In, in a lovely fashion, because I, I don't think I would have handled it that well. <laughs> but, you know, I was just talking about this exact thing with someone, actually my girlfriend in North Carolina. It's been interesting to watch a lot of the same, and I'm going to be honest, men who I, who I had a hard time with 20 years ago. As they've gotten older and they've softened, these same guys who really went out of their way to make my life miserable have now reached out and said, you know, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so well. And they've really softened. And I really see them now differently. I see them as a lot of them are really hurting. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of them um, are empty or they're, they're alone, lonely. That's the, the big thing that I see is a lot of them are lonely and it's hard not to look at them and, and with compassion and be soft towards them and watch how they've changed. Does that happen as you get older? Do you, do you soften? Should we be more kind to these older men who may have been dickheads when they're younger? Should we look at them and try to see them um, as people who've changed? Is it just perspective? Well, I don't know whether they've changed or not, but it's kind of my feeling that, you know, we should treat everybody that way. We should always try to look at people and understand what their motivations are and why they behave the way they do. You know, that should go for everyone. I hear um, lonely all the time and, I, and hearing myself say it out loud has just really put the, it's hammered at home for me. Loneliness, is that, is that one of the main, um, is that the foundation of most of this? Am it's I huge. Reaching it's, I was just reading something the other day about how the largest or the fastest growing segment of um, Internet fraud um, is targeted towards men in their 60s and 70s because there um, are this enormous number of men who are lonely and just desperate for some sort of human contact. And I think that happens because, you know, men are taught when they're young that they're not supposed to need that. They're not supposed to want that. You know, they're supposed to be independent. They're not supposed to need approval, um, you know, and that totally exists out there, you know, and I, I see it all the time. And, you know, people that comment on stuff I write on the site or whatnot. And unfortunately, now that we have AI chatbots, people are exploiting that to draw people in that situation into, you know, handing over personal information or, you know, or whatever it is. Um, but it it is a huge problem out there and it is something that needs to be addressed and thought about, you know? Yeah. And yeah, that's actually, that's amazing. I'm, I'm going through a whole list right now. My brain's like a computer just with names and 
lonely, 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 like lonely. Most, Uh, most men are lonely even when they're around other people. Yeah. Because they don't have the connection and being, being alone is not this or being, you know, with someone, you can still be alone if you don't have that connection. Yeah. It's time for me to That's kind of why go I was back saying, to like, the Dalai Lama books. In-person time with friends is pretty big. Yeah. So like, what's that? I still feel lonely a lot. That's what I was going to ask you. You know, you're married. You've got good good friends. You've got a support network. Oh, yeah. But like you still felt. That understand stuff. Like one of my best friends has a father that's had insane health problems. And this buddy, he's uh, pretty been there and he understands that shit sucks sometimes. And. We spend time together and he knows that it means a lot. Yeah. So my final question for you both is what's next? What's next for you guys? Mm-hmm. Andrew, why don't you take that first? Like what's next? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I've got a 50 mile race in June because running is such a big part of my life. Like uh, my, I keep setting high goals and. That's kind of what's driven me was to set goals and work super hard towards them, which uh, that's kind of what drove me to become a signature fly tire at my level. Back when I first was, I thought Brian Silvey seemed like a big deal and had a bunch of good flies. Like my high goal setting and competitiveness was like, you can get more flies than Sylvie. Yeah, so like set those goals and stick to them for myself like build a build myself back to where I can run a hundred miles again. And what about you, Lewis? What's next? So for me, you know, I have really missed the connection um, that I have had with people through gink and gasoline. You know, um, I've been less hands-on for the last few years because quite frankly, the computer has been really challenging for me. Um, But my visual situation is getting a little better with that. um, And I have been doing more writing which makes me happy. Um, But the big thing for me that I'm really enjoying and want to focus on um, are my schools and my trips uh, where I take people out and connect with them one-on-one on on the water um, and help them catch fish, you know, because for me, it's, there's so much more going on there than just taking people out and having a fishing experience. It's it's helping people reach their goals, um, helping people connect with themselves in the natural world, um, you know, and helping fight that loneliness, you know, that you see, you know, um, and to me, that's really rewarding. And I think for the next few years, that's where I really want to focus my energy. And uh, Kathy and I, we talked about this a little earlier. I don't remember if we were recording at that point, or not, but Kathy and I are moving to North Carolina. Um, and because I can't drive at night anymore. So it's difficult to get from Atlanta to fishing and back in time. So we're moving where I have fishing all around me. I have a trout stream in the yard and a great smallmouth river 100 yards down the road yes. um, and some great tailwaters and 45-minute drive. So I'm looking really forward to um, to being back on the water more and sharing that time with people. New chapter. Look, I really mean it. I think you guys should team up and do some sort of retreat. I think it would be a success and I'd help promote as best I could. On oh, that right note, on. Um, can people reach out to you guys? Are you accessible? Absolutely. Um, I'm, you can hit me up in Ginkgo Gasoline, hit the contact info um, and email me there. Or um, on I think the- yeah, Instagram is an easy way to get in touch with me. And sometimes inquiries on my website just kind of get forgotten because it's like a Kenyan fly tying scam guy, which I just I kind of archive those and forget about them. 
So Instagram for Andrew and drinking oh, yeah. gasoline contact for you, Lewis. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I'll link read. all this. All right. Very cool. It's been really nice catching up with you. Oh, yeah, oh it's been a, way overdue. I feel honored to get some of the legendary April Vokey's time. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> and a, a little you know? view of your kitchen back there. <laughs> this is my office. Everyone thinks I'm in oh, my shit. kitchen. This is my office. <laughs> I, I just I, keep it stark. Oh, shit, I gotta go, sorry. <laughs> Me? I, yes, can I tell the story about how you and I met? Yeah, go for it. Okay, because I think I think this is a hysterical story. So I bumped into you. I'm sure you remember this. I bumped into you on a gravel bar on the Dean River. I can't even remember what year that was, but you walked up and introduced yourself to me and thought that I was Sergey, a, a Russian nuclear physicist. I did. You do look <laughs> like you kind of look like it. <laughs> it was. It's the highlight of my life because there was Sergey was there, and I will never, no matter how how hard I tried, be as cool as Sergey. So, <laughs> so still, I just I love that you looked at me and thought I was Sergey, the Russian nuclear physicist. And you know what's so funny? Just talking about the whole toxic masculinity thing. I feel like such an asshole because I totally felt that about you. When I walked up, I was like, this guy is totally one of those like sexist. I don't know why, but I had this vibe and I was so wrong. Like couldn't be more wrong. I've stayed with you in Catholic. I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, have, you have nothing to apologize for. Nothing to apologize you're amazing. For. I think you're great. I think that's hysterical. <laughs> no, you're fantastic. And you know, you, I still think you've got it. I, I, t I tell people this, you've got one of my top three favorite laughs. Oh, right you're on. Tied oh, at, you're tied to Yvonne Trenard. Ah, no shit. Yes. Well, we should get together and have a drink with Yvonne sometime and have, have a and, laugh. And, and Charles is best friend, Rob, but he's, he's, he's very much third. Awesome. Yeah. You guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be vulnerable. Yeah, thank you so with much, April. Me and nice the Nice meeting you and good seeing you, Lewis. Good seeing you, buddy. I hope that we can stay in touch. Oh, yeah, let's do it. I think I need to come fish the Dean if you guys want to smuggle me up there. <laughs> I think I also need to get back to the Dean. When are you going there, Louis? You're going back in um, still waiting on Still waiting on dates sometime this summer, hopefully. Yeah. Well, you, d you deserve it. Have a good time. Thanks. All right, you guys, I'll wrap it up and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank right, you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.